Good morning, church. Um, uh, to begin, I have an announcement for the church. Um, I believe some of you have heard Dr. Bonnie Henry's recent order allowing churches to reopen. And uh, we are very excited to get to reopen this church next Sabbath. Um, we just wanted to make you aware of how we plan on reopening the church. Uh, first of all, there is a hard cap of 50 people. Uh, furthermore, we need to pre-register all of the people who will be coming to church. So, uh, you will be getting phone calls next week from your church board, and uh, these phone calls will determine whether, or will ask you if you're planning on coming to church that Sabbath. And... Um, <clears throat> so that is the plan. Uh, people who come do need to wear masks and be socially distanced, but we are very excited that uh, we will have a body of believers here in this sanctuary. All right, uh, we're going to begin with a word of prayer. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity opportunity to meet as a church online. We pray that the words I speak will only be those words that you want me to speak. I pray that you will um, help everyone to listen and uh, reach out to everyone who's listening out there, and may they be blessed by this message. In your name we pray, amen. Today, I thought I would li I like to start my sermon by commenting on what might be considered a controversial statement. Ellen White, Councils on Diet and Foods, page 425, Tea and Coffee Drinking is a Sin. Quotes such as these, have contributed to many in the Adventist church giving up on the spirit of prophecy entirely. Would God really keep someone out of heaven over a cup of coffee? The question is asked, and in some cases a rejection of Ellen White follows. I believe that such reasoning demonstrates a lack of understanding of sin and a lack of faith in the blood of Jesus. In today's sermon, I hope that an exploration of this topic will grant us a clearer picture of the health message. Let us start. What is sin? The Bible offers us a clear answer in 1 John 3, verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Yet, the Bible describes other forms of sin besides sinning against God. Matthew 18, verse 15 states, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. From this passage, we learn that it is possible to sin against another human being. This is stated many other places in the Bible, 
such as Leviticus 19, verse 17, Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, and Luke 6, verse 37. How does a person sin against another human being? Mark 12, verse 31 states that the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Thus, we sin against our fellow human beings by failing to love them as we ought. And as that commandment is a part of God's law, any sin against our neighbor is also a sin against God, as stated in Leviticus 6 verses 1 through 7, and also in Matthew 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Inasmuch as ye did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Another form of sin is found in scripture, a sin against ourselves. The latter half of 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 states, he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Paul goes on in verses 19 and 20 to state, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. James 4, verse 17, gives us another definition of sin, slightly different when compared to 1 John. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. In other words, James tells us that it is sinful when we fail to do something that we know is good. But again, despite all of these different definitions of sin, rather than being contradictory, they are all summed up in the great commandment of Jesus, found in Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Notice that all types of sin described in scripture are addressed in the great commandment. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor, and as yourself. There are those out there for whom loving their neighbor in the same way that they love themselves would be a curse to that neighbor. But the Bible instructs us not to sin against our own bodies. We are to respect and take care of the gift of life that God has given us, not as an act of pride, but as an act of stewardship. I should add here, that Jesus is not teaching anything new when he proclaims this great commandment. He is actually quoting from the Torah. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 states, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
And Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. When Jesus gives us his golden rule, he is not invalidating the Old Testament, but rather he is quoting directly from it. He did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. This brings us to the topic of health. As noted a few moments ago, the scriptures demonstrate that we are stewards of our own bodies and responsible to God in how we use them and care for them. Romans 12 verse 1 states, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is in your reasonable service. Our bodies are a living sacrifice to God. And as noted in the Old Testament, the only lambs that were acceptable for use as a sacrifice were lambs without blemish. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, it states, Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? That verse is well known, but how often do we go to the next verse? Verse 17, quoting from the English Standard Version, states, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In other words, God expects us to avoid activities that will knowingly result in the destruction of our own bodies. To reword that sentence more positively, God expects each of us to take care of our own health. The Bible repeatedly associates following God's law with good health. Exodus 15 verse 26 states, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Exodus 23 verse 25 states, So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. And Proverbs 3, verse 7 to 8 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Many of the commandments in the Torah are now known to be linked to our health. The Sabbath command was given to humanity because humans need rest. Leviticus chapter 7 ordered the children of Israel not to eat animal fat or blood, as well as to avoid animals that had died of sickness. Leviticus 11 gave us a long list of animals whose meat we were not to eat, and also detailed a hygienic system whereby the Israelites were to clean their hands and clothing after touching live animals. Leviticus 13 and 14 talked about how to treat people who had a contagious disease, leprosy. Leviticus 15 talked about bodily discharges and how to clean yourself for good hygiene. Leviticus 18 talked about sexual morality. I could go on. 
Many Christians nowadays treat the commands of the Torah as no longer binding. Yet if we were to read these passages in detail, I think we would find that we're already keeping most of them. This is because we now have been blessed with a scientific understanding of diseases, and as such, we now have an appreciation for just how much wisdom is behind the words of the Old Testament. Consider Leviticus 7. We now understand that eating fatty foods leads to heart disease, which is why we buy low-fat foods in stores. Leviticus 11 talked about how touching animals made us unclean, and what person nowadays does not know that you are supposed to wash your hands after touching a live animal as well as before you eat? Leviticus 13 and 14 talked about the importance of quarantining people who had contagious diseases. Now, isn't that something we can all relate to at this time? Leviticus 15 talked about the importance of good hygiene. Leviticus 18 gave us a template for sexuality that would have completely prevented sexually transmitted diseases and inbreeding. The wisdom in the Torah is that God managed to get the children of Israel to live healthy, happy lives without any knowledge of germ theory. God promised the children of Israel that if, he if they followed his laws, he would keep them free from diseases. God also promised them that if they broke his laws, they would become sick. I think we can say that sickness would be a scientific inevitably, in, uh, in a, inevitability sorry, if we broke the Old Testament health laws. Most of these laws were observed by the children of Israel as if there was some sort of spiritual meaning behind them. Yet by attributing an entirely scientific basis for these laws, we may lose sight of the fact that these laws are also spiritual laws, since maintaining our own health is itself a spiritual act. That, then, is the argument made by Romans 12, verse 1. To live healthfully is an act done to honor the God who created our bodies. That is also the argument made by 1 Corinthians 3.17 and James 4.17. To destroy our body's health is to sin against the creator who made us. It is in this context that we properly understand Ellen White's quote on coffee and tea. Tea and coffee drinking is a sin, an injurious indulgence which, like other evils, injures the soul. These darling idols create an excitement a morbid action of the nervous system, and after the immediate influence of the stimulants is gone, it lets down below par, just to that degree that its stimulating property is elevated above par. In other words, because tea and coffee are harmful to the body, drinking tea and coffee is a sin. But was Ellen White right about tea and coffee? Are they actually harmful to the body? I decided to look up some products on the Starbucks menu. Did you know that there's more sugar in a grand chai tea latte than there is in a can of Sprite? Did you know that virtually every item on Starbucks's Frappuccino menu has more sugar than an equivalent-sized can of Coca-Cola? But enough about sugar. What about coffee itself? What does the science actually say about coffee? 
In 2016, the World Health Organization stated, drinking very hot drinks increases the risk of esophageal cancer. In 2016, the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development stated that moderate use of caffeinated beverages increased the risk of miscarriage and pregnancy by 74%. In 2016, the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease stated that heavy caffeine use has been shown to cause anxiety, panic attacks, and other psychological disorders. In 2015, East Carolina University stated that daily caffeine intake by pregnant women is associated with lower birth rate. The higher the daily caffeine intake, the lower the birth rate. In 2013, the American Journal of Epidemiology stated that high coffee consumption is associated with lower bone density. In 2013, New Yorker magazine stated that caffeine reduces creativity. In 2012, Harvard University stated that caffeine raises blood pressure, stiffens arteries, and impacts levels of insulin and cholesterol in the bloodstream. In 2008, the University of Oklahoma stated that caffeine use increases the fight-or-flight response in the brain. In 2004, John Hopkins University stated, as little as one cup of coffee per day can produce caffeine addiction, most of the perceived benefits of drinking coffee in the morning are actually the reversal of caffeine withdrawal symptoms. In 2020, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry stated, children who consume caffeine may experience a range of effects, including insomnia, hyperactivity, anxiety, nausea, lack of appetite, headache, dizziness, tremor, increased energy, and improved focus. It is recommended that children under the age of 12 be given no caffeine whatsoever, while children between the ages of 12 and 18 should be limited to at most 100 milligrams of caffeine a day, which is less caffeine than you would find in a standard coffee cup. These are not Seventh-day Adventists saying these things. These are medical professionals. Now, it is true that some recent studies have attributed some positive effects to coffee. However, even in the most positive light, the effects of caffeine on human beings could only be described as mixed. I will never forget the caffeine lab that I participated in during Biology 12 class in high school. Our science teacher ordered a number of microorganisms for us to view under a microscope, and we watched as the little microorganisms swam around happily in their aquatic environment. Then, we dosed groups of microorganisms with varying amounts of caffeine. At first, the microorganisms would travel around in spiral paths, spinning around as if they were drunk. As we upped the dose, their paths would become more and more erratic until we reached our final dose. Looking into the microscope, we were unable to find any remaining forms of life. If coffee and tea are sinful because they are unhealthy for our bodies, however, then that opens up a whole other can of worms. Does that mean that any unhealthy act is a sin against our body? I believe that 1 Corinthians 3 verse 17 tells us exactly that. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you 
are that temple. Consider 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Every moment we have on this earth was paid for by Jesus Christ, and it is time on this earth that neither we nor he will ever get again. How dare we sacrifice that time by our selfish, unhealthy actions? Do we make light of Christ's sacrifice on the cross by not taking care of ourselves? Consider Daniel who God blessed when he decided that he was going to take care of his health when he was moved to Babylon. Consider the paralytic man who was lowered through the roof to see Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, the first thing he said was, your sins are forgiven you. And when there were questions about that statement, Jesus uh, made as an... Uh, uh, Jesus stated that an equivalent statement would be to tell him to get up and walk, indicating that the reason why the man was paralyzed was almost certainly sinful. For Ellen White, coffee and tea are only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to health. She spent far more time talking about other health issues. Consider the following statement from the Spirit of Prophecy. The use of tobacco is inconvenient, expensive, uncleanly, defiling to the user, and offensive to others. Its devotees are encountered everywhere. You rarely pass through a crowd, but some smoker puffs his poisoned breath in your face. It is unpleasant and unhealthful to remain in a railway car or in a room where the atmosphere is laden with the fumes of liquor and tobacco. Though people persist in using these poisons themselves, what right do they have to defile the air that others must breathe? Ellen White, 1905. In this quote, Ellen White clearly lays out that secondhand smoke is bad for the health of the people inhaling it. The term secondhand smoke, however, did not even exist until the 1970s. And it wasn't until the 1990s and the 2000s it was conclusively proven that secondhand smoke caused cancer, following which various municipalities passed laws banning smoking in public environments. Ellen White's statement on secondhand smoke was not only completely accurate, but also at least 70 years ahead of medical science. Let's look at another quote. The feeble one should press out into the sunshine as earnestly and naturally as do the shaded plants and vines. The pale and sickly grain uh, that has struggled out of the cold of early spring puts out the natural and healthy deep green after enjoying for a few days the health and life-giving rays of the sun. Go out into the light and warmth of the glorious sun, you pale and sickly ones, and share with vegetation its life-giving, health-dealing power. Ellen White, 1871. In this quote, Ellen White describes the health benefits 
that would result from going outside and getting some sunshine, and described people who stayed indoors as pale and sickly. Nowadays, everyone knows that we need vitamin D for our own health, but vitamin D was not discovered until 1922. And it wasn't until 1925 that it was discovered that exposure to sunlight produced vitamin D, a discovery that earned a Nobel Prize for its discoverer. Meanwhile, rickets was a tragic disease that resulted in weakened bones in babies and children. Perhaps you would call such people sickly. But it wasn't until 1918, nearly 50 years after Ellen White's message on sunlight, that it was discovered that rickets could be cured by exposure to ultraviolet light. And by 1945, rickets was essentially eliminated in the United States. Once again, Ellen White was right. Let us now look at another statement. <clears throat> From the light God has given me, the prevalence of cancer and tumors is largely due to gross living on dead flesh. Ellen White, 1896. Another Ellen White quote in this topic. Cancers, tumors, and all inflammatory diseases are largely caused by meat eating. It's a bold statement that cancer is caused primarily by eating meat. Yet in 2015, after a review of 800 medical studies, the World Health Organization declared that all processed meat is inherently carcinogenic, and all red meat is likely carcinogenic. 119 years later, Ellen White was proven correct again. <clears throat> Yet the point about meat eating isn't merely from Ellen White. We can find evidence for this all the way back in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 11, God bans the Israelites from consuming certain meats. What types of meats are targeted? The meats that science now recognizes are the least healthy to eat. Furthermore, during the 40 years in the wilderness, God provided the children of Israel with a healthy vegetarian diet. And when the children of Israel complained, they were provided with quail. And what did eating the quail do? It made them sick. Time and time again, Ellen White's health message has been proven correct. The health message is the reason why Adventists are known for living on average seven years longer than the general population. It's why the Adventist Church was featured in the National Geographic in a series on blue zones, areas where people live longer than usual. What a blessing the health message has been to our church. Yet how ironic is it that at the same time the rest of the world has started to follow the Adventist health message because the science has finally caught up, that so much of the church has stopped following the health message. Which brings me back to my original point. We are called by God to live healthy lives. We are called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We know that if we know something is good and we do not do it, we are committing a sin against God, as stated by James. How, then, should we treat sinners? Ellen White actually gave us a testimony about that. In Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 19, she writes a story about delivering the health message to a body of believers. 
The reformer was about dead. Brother B had urged the extreme positions of Dr. Troll. This had influenced the doctor to come out in the reformer stronger than he otherwise would have done in discarding milk, sugar, and salt. The position to entirely discontinue the use of these things may be right in its order. But the time had not come to take a general stand upon these points. And those who do take their position and advocate the entire disuse of milk, butter, and sugar should have their own tables free from these things. Brother B, even while taking his stand in the reformer with Dr. Troll in regard to the injurious effects of salt, milk, and sugar, did not practice the things he taught. Upon his own table, these things were used daily. Many of our people had lost interest in the reformer, and letters were daily received with this discouraging request, please discontinue my reformer. Letters were received from the West, where fruit is scarce, inquiring, how do the friends of health reform live at Battle Creek? Do they dispense with salt entirely? If so, we cannot at present adopt the health reform. We can get but little fruit, and we have left off the use of meat, tea, coffee, and tobacco, but we must have something to sustain life. We had spent some time in the West, and we knew the scarcity of fruit, and we sympathized with our brethren who were conscientiously seeking to be in harmony with the body of Sabbath-keeping Adventists. They were becoming discouraged, and some were backsliding upon the health reform, fearing that at Battle Creek they were radical and fanatical. We could not raise an interest anywhere in the West to obtain subscribers for the health reformer. We saw that the writers and the reformer were going away from the people and leaving them behind. If we take positions that conscientious Christians who are indeed reformers cannot adopt, how can we expect to benefit that class whom we can reach only from a health standpoint? We must go no faster then we can take those with us whose consciences and intellects are convinced of the truths we advocate. We must meet the people where they are. Some of us have been many years arriving at our present position in health reform. It is slow work to obtain a reform in diet. We have powerful appetites to meet, for the world is given to gluttony. If we should allow the people as much time as we have required to come up to the present advanced state in reform, we would be very patient with them and allow them to advance step by step, as we have done, until their feet are firmly established upon the health reform platform. But we should be very cautious not to advance too fast, lest we be ob obliged to retrace our steps. In reforms, we would be better uh, to come one step short of the mark than to go one step beyond it. And if there is error at all, let it be on the side next to the people. If we come to persons who have not been enlightened in regard to health reform, and we present our strongest positions at first, there is danger of their becoming discouraged as they see how much they have to give up so that they will make no effort to reform. We must lead the people along patiently and gradually, remembering the hold of the pit from whence we were dragged. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 19 to 21. What happened in this story? 
A couple of young Adventists eagerly preached a vegan diet, and immediately the readership of the health reformer dropped because the Adventists were not yet ready to go vegan. Ellen White scolded the two Adventists, stating that the work of reforming our diets would be a work that would take time, and we ought to have the same patience with others that God had with us when we were altering our own diets. What a blessing that story is for us today. Let us unpack why that is good news. First, we understand that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 Whether it is our diet or our moral behavior, none of us have reached the goal that God has for each of us. Second, we understand that the blood of Christ is enough for us. Ephesians 1 verse 7 states, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Our sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus is enough to cover any sin that we may have committed. Third, we do not reach the goal that God has for our characters overnight, but rather we reach it over the course of our lives, over the course of our Christian walk. The 11th fundamental belief of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is titled, Growing in Christ. It is the newest fundamental belief. In that belief, it states, in this new freedom in Jesus, we are called to grow into the likeness of his character, communing with him daily in prayer, feeding on his word, meditating on it and on his providence. As we give ourselves in loving service to those around us and in witnessing to his salvation, his constant presence with us through the Spirit transforms every moment and every task into a spiritual experience. As Christians, we understand that baptism is not the end of our spiritual journey, but the beginning. As we walk with God, God helps us through various experiences and challenges that test our faith and characters and cause growth. As we continue to hold Christ's hand as we walk through life, so our characters grow to become more like his each and every year. So it is with the health message. While God calls us to be a good steward of our body, to treat it with the utmost respect as a temple of God, God is prepared to walk with us step by step through the process. Christ, our high priest, on this day of atonement, knocks on our door and asks if he can cleanse the sanctuary of our hearts and minds. He walks through our temple and points out sin, and then gets to work removing it with the grace of his blood. Little by little, we become more like him. We are not called to give up everything harmful in our diet at once. We are called to keep walking forward one step at a time. We are called to let Christ into our hearts, and he will give us the strength to take each step that we take throughout life. 
And this health message is intricately linked to the spiritual message. For it is known that what we eat impacts how we think. You see, I probably didn't need to cite any examples of what good health is in this sermon. Knowledge of good health practices are so widespread now that if I was to ask each of you, what do you need to do in order to be healthier this week? Each of you could probably rattle off an immediate response that in all likelihood would be correct. It is truly, as James said, to the person who knows what good is and does not do it, it is sin. And it is a sin against our own bodies because our poor health practices have led to a host of health problems for each of us. We have damaged our own bodies because of our lack of self-control. And yet that lack of self-control itself could be traced back to our diet because our diet impacts our mind. Consider Ellen White, 1902. It is better to let sweet things alone let alone those sweet dessert dishes that are placed on the table. You do not need them. You want a clear mind to think after God's order. University of Southern California, 2014. A diet high in sugars resulted in memory loss and brain inflammation in rats. Translational Research Center for Gastrointestinal Disorders, 2015. A high fructose diet led to depression, decreased memory and learning ability, diminished brain growth, and appetite regulation in rats. Isfahan University of Medical Sciences, 2012. A diet high in refined carbohydrates led to lower nonverbal intelligence scores in school children. The principle remains true. Ellen White said something nearly 120 years ago she said that high sugar foods would cloud the brain. 110 years later, science proves it correct. Science gives us data on modern foods as well. Scientists discovered that a diet high in trans fats led to poorer memory, cognitive decline, and Alzheimer's disease. In 2016, the University of Alabama discovered that a diet high in fried food and processed meats led to lower scores in learning and memory. In 2014, the University of North Dakota discovered that high aspartame use led to significant problems with depression, mood, headaches, and brain functioning. None of this should be a surprise to anyone. These are all foods that everyone knows is bad for your health. But food can cloud your brain. And this can cloud your spiritual walk with God. For this reason, the health message goes hand in hand with the gospel message. But as Ellen White points out, the mastering of your diet is a long-term task. The Christian walk is the walk of a lifetime. These are not things that typically happen overnight. Some of us are in different stages of our walk with the Lord. It may be tempting to say something when we see other people making mistakes or, well, for what appears to us to be mistakes. Ellen White has words for us as well in Testimonies for a Church, Volume 5, page 334. You see that your brethren do not come up to the Bible standard, that there are defects in them, and you dwell upon those defects. 
You feed upon them instead of feeding upon Christ, and by beholding you become changed into the same image. But criticize no one. Do not contrast your own exact course with the deficiencies of others. You may be in danger of wanting to correct others and make them feel their wrongs. Do not do this. This is not the work God has given you to do. A temptation parents or teachers sometimes face is the temptation to try and turn children into ourselves, in our own image. We see children and other younger members making the same mistakes we made when we were their age, and we tell ourselves, if only they could learn from our mistakes, maybe they'd have a head start in life. We try to give them our spiritual walk in hopes that they can start where we are now, forgetting that it took many years for us to get to where we are in life, and we must offer spiritual children time to mature and grow, the same time that God granted us when he was so patient and merciful with our mistakes when we were spiritual children. And we, too, are still in need of that time and patience. What if, instead of condemning members who do not meet the standard of dietary perfection, what if we instead treated this whole health thing as a team effort? I became a vegetarian in high school. I was convinced by the arguments from the spiritual, uh, spirit of prophecy, as well as the animal cruelty arguments and the sustainability arguments. But becoming a vegetarian did not make me perfect. I dabbled with coffee during my first few years of teaching because I needed to try and cope with deadlines and exhaustion. Right now, my worst health fault is my sweet tooth. I just love candy. I enjoy how it tastes. Cakes are delicious. Some flavors of pop are absolutely wonderful. Sometimes I get home from the store and I get horrified at the amount of candy that I have brought home. When Jesus met the woman caught in adultery, he said, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. I have no stones to throw at anybody. Neither does anyone else. The only person who has lived a perfect life and who has earned the right to throw stones at us is Jesus. And when he was presented with that opportunity, he instead said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, God does not condemn you for your sins. Jesus already paid the price for your sins. He paid the price for all of your sins. Satan is the one who accuses. In Revelation 12, verse 10, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. But while God does not condemn you, he does want you to be in good health. Because he knows what you are missing out on by failing to be in good health. And God wants you to experience that good life. Imagine not being exhausted all the time. Imagine being able to think clearly. Imagine uh, having energy and lack of pain. God does not want you to deprive yourself of these blessings. However, Ellen White took years to improve her diet 
and so can we. But at the same time, let's not diminish the seriousness of this health message. We hurt ourselves every time we fail to take care of our body. By hurting ourselves, we also hurt everyone who loves us. And on the top of the list of people who love us, we find God. So let me challenge each of you today, this summer, find one thing you can do to improve your health and do it. If it means giving up coffee, do it. If you're not ready for that yet, but you're ready to get some exercise every day, then do that. If what you're ready for is to cut meat out of your diet, then I'm happy for you. If you're only able to cut half of your pop bottles in, um, out of your diet, then I guess that's one step closer to good health than from where you were before. Whatever God guides you to do, that you should do. Let us, as your church, cheer you on. Let us not judge you for not being all the way there yet. All of us could do our part to live healthier lives. This is a team effort. Let me join you in this challenge. Let us walk to good health together. And let us walk to good health as a spiritual act so that we may present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God so that we can step out in faith and taste and see that the Lord is good.